Now imagine you're on LinkedIn and you walked up to that guy. What would you say? Hi, my name's Tyron. I'm the LinkedIn guy. I do this. I do that. You think you've given all this value. Oh, I gave them a free PDF thing of the top five. No, you've totally ignored the way humans communicate in real life. Welcome to Upon Arrival, a show that uncovers stories and strategies that make up all the moving parts of business events tourism with me, Adelaine Ung. Yes, we are going to be talking about LinkedIn. Love it or loathe it, it's an essential platform for many professionals and turns out most of us are using it the wrong way. I'm putting up my own hand there too. But what if you could throw in a man with a pink suit and the acronym D-A-N-C-E? or dance, into the mix of your LinkedIn outreach approach. My guest in this episode is Tyron Giuliani, whose rather colourful history has seen him end up in Tokyo, running several businesses, including in the event space. Tyron has tons of stories to share, all as colourful as that pink suit, and many lessons about turning challenges into opportunities. Here's my chat with Tyron. Tyron, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. Great to be here. You know, I mean, you have one of the most intriguing background stories for entrepreneurs. <laughs> there was time in the army, there was a road to becoming prime minister, there was an injury, and somehow you ended up in Japan running very successful businesses, including in events. And I was like, as a reading, that I was like, what? <laughs> so help relieve my brain for me. What is your story? Yeah, I mean, I think growing up, I grew up in Melbourne, Australia, well, kind of south of Melbourne on the Mornington Peninsula. And, you know, growing up, I wanted to become two things. What kind of three? One was an army officer. Two was to have a job where I could wear a suit and carry a briefcase. And then three, like, be the prime minister of Australia, as all kids want to be. My father, he's a Vietnam vet, although he was a national service person, he wasn't professional soldier who was drafted, it had heavy influence on me as a kid. We watched, you know, Gallipoli back in like in the eighties and it just really struck with me that, man, look what these guys have done. I'd love to, I'd love to do that. I'd love to be a soldier. And I did everything I could to get into officer training at the Australian Defence Force Academy. So from like 11, 12 years old, I joined the army cadets, got on the school councils, did all that kind of stuff. Got the grades to get into the University of New South Wales, which is, you know, ADFA has a uh, campus of the University of New South Wales. And I I got into the army to do officer training. And at the same time, through one of my mates, we actually met with our member of parliament who was Peter Reith. And I think he was the shadow defense minister at that stage. And we got invited to the parliamentary dining room with him and everything started to fall together. It was meeting all these people because this is like early nineties, right? Back then. A lot of politicians, and that's around the world, had served their country first and then become a politician. So I thought, look, I'll do, you know, 15 years or so, 20 years, and then move into politics or, you know, have the connections by then really well developed. And unfortunately, after graduating and stuff, I was injured and I had multiple surgeries on both my legs and permanently kind of suffered a disability and could no longer run and jump around and you know, stand for long periods of time and all that kind of stuff. And I had a, I guess, a quarter life crisis at age 23. I think I was, it was like, what can I do now? Um, now the military would probably put you into different roles, but it was just, you know, back then it was like, yeah, we've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars training you. We broke you. 
but see you later. And so you can imagine my whole life had been geared towards that. Getting into the Australian Defence Force Academy was hard enough. Graduating was hard. Doing all that. And then Cree was over. And I was feeling pretty low for myself. As you can imagine, you know, all your mates go off and they're flying jets and driving ships and blowing up stuff. And there's me just like, you know, once you're injured as well, it's, you're kind of like ostracized because it's really confronting that you can quickly, your whole life can just change like that. And you can lose what you wanted to do for your whole life is just gone. So I had to go back to Melbourne and as I said, had surgeries there and rehabilitation. And I was just like, this sucks. This really sucks. I got to get out. And I just thought, oh, I was literally reading in the newspaper. I was in hospital. I was reading the newspaper. <laughs> I hadn't read a newspaper for years, but I was reading a newspaper and it said work in Japan. I was like, okay, that sounds kind of like a challenge. Why not? And within reading that and then landing in Japan was about eight, nine weeks later. And I knew no one, had no friends, no family, no nothing, just a suitcase. I knew nothing about Japan except kind of World War II history that I had to learn um, when I was in the military. And I just, yeah, I just came here on a whim and it's turned into 24 years. <laughs> so that's how I, yeah. How does that happen, right? <laughs> exactly. Wow. Um, I mean, looking back, was that a young thing to do? I mean, I just find that just talking to a lot of people who are uh, getting into their later years, it's harder to take those risks. But I don't know whether it's just a non-entrepreneur thing, or do you think entrepreneurs always have that risk-taking appetite? I think from what I've observed, the strongest entrepreneurs that I've met have a higher risk appetite. Certainly, I've noticed that. However, you know, I was coming from a point where I was in a very structured environment. Of course, the military can't get more structured, hierarchical, everything about it, very conservative. But the part that, you know, was drilled into me and something that I've probably had most of my life was resilience. And like, I also wanted a challenge. I didn't want to be just doing something, you know, boring and getting out of the military, everything's just so different. It's completely different being a civilian. I mean, when you're in the military, you live, it's not a job. You are in the military and that's your entire life and everything, you know, is around that. So I was trying to just find something that was different and going to offer, you know, challenge. And when there's challenge, there's growth and there's motivation and there's variety. And I just thought like going to a country where I knew no one, I could start fresh because I didn't have, you know, all the stuff that was around me being an injured vet just getting out. And I thought this is going to be a huge challenge, but man, this is going to be fun. And I think it was a spur of the moment thing just in relation to, I've got to get back into achieving stuff and I'm going to have to achieve in a foreign country with no one. And I think I've always been up for a challenge. So youth certainly helped because I didn't have, you know, wife, kids, not, nothing like that. So I could just make my own decisions. But yeah, I think taking risks is a part of being an entrepreneur. Absolutely. Yeah. And it sounds like you've got that in spades. I mean, I guess for a lot of young people, they don't believe that death is a reality. <laughs> uh, you're just willing to just take a, a whole bunch of risks. But sometimes I think what most people notice uh, is that as you grow older, your appetite for risk gets a little bit less and then you have to work harder. 
against that in order to still be that person that you want to be to achieve the goals that you haven't yet reached. So yeah, uh, that's an interesting conversation that we have with ourselves. Uh, I do know that you're known for your LinkedIn strategies, and I'll ask you more about that later because so many of the events industries professionals are on LinkedIn. But you've also been really good at beating the odds, finding opportunities where everyone else can only see challenges. And for the event space, challenges were all we could see for the past two years with COVID. So tell us about the events side of your business, uh, because I understand you managed to do well during the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, one of the businesses that we have is we do wedding dresses and wedding events. And we've done that for like almost 20 years now we've gone on to that. And the pre-COVID numbers, we were doing 400, 420 weddings a month. So, you know, we're ranked number one to three on Google when you search wedding dress rental in Japan. But we had a space in our building. So I'm, the building that I live in, we own this building, we're on seven floors. And we had a space on the first floor, which was a game center. But it's not like those like arcades, like a, a nice time zone or whatever the names are in Australia. It's like this really like hardcore old guy smoking cigarettes, playing, you know, like all computer games. And I was kind of sick of having it there, to be frank. They'd been there for years, but they were paying like 5,000 bucks a month for this space. And the contract was running up and decided like, let's end it and we'll take over the space and we'll do, we'll change it into a cafe. And then it was on our second, third and fourth floor, we have our wedding business. And we said, oh, we can, you know, send people down there for a coffee and stuff like that in waiting time. So we actually found a tea company and they were looking to franchise their business and we were going to be their first franchisee. And we thought, okay, this is a good entry into that. Let's do that. And very quickly after becoming a franchisee of this business, we realized they were artisans. I mean, in Japan, they're very big on the tea. They didn't really get marketing. They didn't really understand, you know, what people wanted just because you have this beautiful teas and stuff. Not everyone wants to drink that stuff. Maybe they want the bubble tea or they want this other stuff. And we quickly came into conflict with them and decided like, we can't continue because our POS digital system is showing us what people want to order. And it's not your stuff. It's this other stuff that we created. So we literally like, one weekend, Friday night, we said, okay, we're stopping our contract. There's issues around that, but we broke the contract and literally over a Saturday and then Sunday, completely took down all the branding, had the builders in there changing things and opened up our own cafe and um, nothing too fancy. You know, my name's Tyrant Israel Giuliani, so my dress shop's like TIG Dress, TIG Cafe. It wasn't anything um, special, but we had to make some changes. And but it works. And it worked. But then we quickly realized that, okay, you know, we had some people reaching out to us and said, oh, we want to do some event. We need an event space for our fans. I'm like, yeah, what are you talking about? Oh, K-pop, K-pop fans. And like, okay, yeah, we can do that. And they said, oh, we have these little cup holders, you know, when you have a cup sleeve and you buy a coffee and we put the band's picture on that. Can you, you know, sell them at the, like, yeah, sure. You know, we'll take a cart and et cetera, et cetera, and working out like, yeah, yeah, we can do that for you. So we started to hold these K-pop events. That was quite amazing because we're getting contact from people in Korea. The K-pop space is amazing. It's led by super fans. They call them masters. They're led by super fans. And each like band has multiple masters. And these people have huge audiences. And in Japan, the K-pop, you know, they love it as well. They absolutely love it. We have J-pop. 
like K-pop has taken over. And very quickly we realized there's opportunity here. A, we don't have to spend any money on advertising. B, it's a set time frame. We know when, it's, when the event's going to happen, when it's going to finish. You know, we can plan the space. And A, the fans, they actually want to come and help do setup and things like that for free, right? So this is like, all right, I'm thinking this, this is great. And not only that, the merchandise they make, the fans make it or the fan owner makes it and they're really professional. This isn't like junky stuff. They go right onto it. Then they send it to us. They don't charge us anything. It's incredible. It's like, I'm thinking, well, shouldn't we pay you because you're going to drive our audience? And they're like, no, no, no. Can we, you know, can we do it? Are we out? I'm like, yes. And very quickly, we started to get all these events happening and more and more of these K-pop people contacting us. And this has grown and grown and grown. And in, in, in a year and a half, we went from like just opening, we've got over 30,000 on social media, like Twitter is a big one. We have like 27,000 Twitter followers for our little cafe, which is not in a high traffic location. It's downtown Tokyo. You have to go to the place. It's not like you walk past, oh, have a coffee. And we have events that are planned out for next year already. And, you know, right, all the big birthdays of the different celebrities and K-pop stars, we have all planned out. And every week for about six, seven weeks, it's just booked. We have, we know exactly what's coming. And the great thing about it, you know, the event comes, we've got a nice little routine. We get the cup holders, some keychain um, on the third floor of our dress shop because our weddings just went down after during COVID. We thought well, we can change it to an exhibition gallery. So these masters have their own photos of their pop stars. So make big blow ups turn it into a gallery, sell each photo for like a hundred bucks, 200 bucks. So have the event gallery happening as, as well as the cafe. And the great thing about it, you put out a tweet, you know, we've got 500 tickets for the first 500 people to come. They'll, they'll start coming at nine o'clock. Cafe usually opens at 10 or 11, depending on the day. They're lined up, they get a ticket, they go away, they come back at 10 to 11, 11 to 12, one to two. And it's just like this, it's just this inbuilt audience. And it's just great. And you can predict it. And of course, the upsell, when they come, they get their little cup holder and stuff. And we split the profits with the master of the fan group. But then, you know, they're buying, you know, our sweets. And we make a special cake with a printed photo of the celebrity. And then they go to the gallery and they'll spend $10,000, you know, $100, $200 there. So this little space is now, you know, anywhere from sixty to 80000 bucks a month, where it was making us 5000 bucks. <laughs> so... We've got some great staff. They're young. They're, they're all fe it's all female staff. They're 19 to 22 years of age. They now make all the creative. We have these, make these beautiful posters for the doors. I saw some yesterday. I was just like, man, you girls are incredible. It's like professional design. They make all the cup holders now. And now we're taking over and we're supplying these to now seven different cafes around Tokyo as well, outside of Tokyo that have events. And it's just like, you know, there is one other K-pop cafe has been around for years and years and years, but, you know, maybe I'm biased, but I think we are the best in Japan now and, and we have the most events and yeah, it's just worked out incredibly well. And this is all during COVID. So yeah. So, sorry, if I can peel this back mm -hmm. a little bit, I mean, this whole thing about, you know, finding the opportunities where you have the challenges, what is your, I mean, is there a thought process for that? I mean... 
yeah. when COVID hit, it was like, you know, everyone was just blindsided. And when after getting over the initial shock, mm. when COVID hit, it took a little while. And then the realization came that, hey, this is going to be a lot longer than yeah. we thought. Yeah. So it was prompted and predicated that we had our wedding business in particular that just got hammered. I mean... April 2019, we did 427 weddings. April 2020, we had four, right? And we had a whole complement of staff, over 30 staff. So, you know, the business was hammered. However, we'd already gone through some, you know, pretty tragic things in Japan, a massive earthquake followed by a tsunami, followed by three nuclear meltdowns. So we had already put a year's worth of expenses in cash kind of sitting there, much to our disgrace of our accountant. We said, don't do that. That got us through. And so we never let go of any staff. But what we had to do is like, okay, how can we use them? How can we use the space? Because we're still, you know, we've got to use the space. It's costing money. So it was all in the same kind of time. You know, we either closed down that franchise one or what else could we do with it? And just, yeah, uh, the K-pop thing in particular, they came to us at the start, but then it was like, man, this is good. Yes. And there's so much demand for it. Like the first event we had like a thousand people turn up and the police came because it was blocking the traffic. And we're like, this is nuts because we did one tweet, <laughs> right? And what happened then was just speed. It really was like, okay, let's act quick on this. And this is what we've always instilled in all our businesses is like, let's move quick. Because I think this is probably going to last maybe another two years. I guess we could ride this K-pop thing. It'll be four years in total. If it goes longer, great. But some of the issues, once you know, travel opens up again, you know, our fans are going to go to Korea, actually. And they're going to spend time and go to events there. You know, that's the way it kind of goes. That's what they used to do in the past. At the same time, though, we started a Korean language school. So <laughs> from the staff there, we started offering, hey, we have 120 students now. That they come and do two lessons a week. We've got another space that we just converted into like a classroom. So it's like, just always be looking like, what's the extension to your business, right? What does someone want next? After they get this thing from you, what would they want next? Can you do something to deliver and make money with that? And what's after that, right? So that's what we've always done is just always looking for that next thing and just, you know, stay on top of the wave, right? And jump off before it crashes. <laughs> that That's the thing, though. I, I think with any particular wave that you're riding, sometimes you just don't know when it is to get off. I mean, I've, when I talk to event planners, the wave for the event space was riding really high. Mm. And it was set on having its best year ever just before COVID hit. Right, right. And then, you know, when the weeks turn into months, Event planners were asking, how long should I stay in this for? Should I bail now? And yeah. I just don't know because it was so good. And do I stay in here and hold space until it comes back and I'm in position for that? Or do I bail? So yeah. how do you process those kinds of questions? Well, yeah, I mean, this is the thing for, I guess we're really fortunate here in Japan in the sense that there was never a lockdown here. There's never been a lockdown. So the government requests and suggests and gives us guidelines, but it's against the constitution to demand people to stay indoors and businesses close. Wow. So that never occurred. So we were quite lucky with that. People were social distancing and the da, 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 and there's all these things we had to deal with, but we were still able to have these events. And this is why it was staggered timing and people would come in at certain times and, and blah, blah, blah. But we were lucky with that. I mean, the wedding business was, that died for many months. As I said, what saved us was we'd already been through 
some pretty horrific times and had planned just in case. And, you know, what's the chance of another mega earthquake followed by a tsunami, followed by a nuclear meltdown? Pretty small. But it shocked us enough that, okay, we really should be prepared because a big thing for us is our staff. And I know a lot of people talk about it, but truly our staff has just made our business. And in the retail space, we've got staff there now that have been with us for like seven to 10 years. Now, can you imagine working a retail floor for seven to 10 years in the same business? It doesn't happen much. And it's because we give them a lot of responsibility. We include them in all the decision-making. So we thought at the back end of this COVID staff, if we don't have the right staff, we're going to lose out when it does bounce back. So how can we use them? And we want to keep them on. Like that's the big thing. They've committed to us. We've committed to them. So a part of our thinking of having a stockpile of cash was we're going to be able to pay everyone their normal salary. We're not going to be able to do any overtime or anything like that, but we're going to give them a salary. We're going to keep them on staff and they're going to love us for it. It sounds manipulative, but we thought, well, we've invested in them. They've invested in us. Let's be prepared. So for businesses in Australia or people, entrepreneurs, that this is their first crisis, it's going to be another one and there's going to be another one. So if you've been living, you know, yes, bootstrap. I mean, when we started this uh, wedding business in the first, we put $10,000 in each, both myself and my partner. My partner actually got hit by a car when she was in Europe. And that 10,000 bucks is what we used as a settlement to start her contribution to the business. But then we've been really deliberate, being very frugal with our expenses and really tough on that, but then just saving and putting money aside. And yeah, certainly after the earthquake stuff that happened, thank God for that. So businesses, you have to risk mitigate. And a part of that would be at least having like six months full operating expenses. So you could just continue on as you are for a minimum of six months. And and that most businesses that I've come across, certainly small businesses, don't have that. Don't have that. Certainly not a year. We had a year's worth just sitting there just for this very kind of moment. So It can be a case of too late for some, and that's sad, and you're going to have to go back and work at Hilton Knowlton or some PR agency and get some, you know, cash going. But then, you know, when it comes back, do it wiser next time. You've got to understand there is going to be another crisis. It's going to come again. There's going to be something. So um, just be prepared for it. Yeah. And it's it's not employee manipulation, I think, uh, when you can call it employee loyalty or incentives. <laughs> right. right. The great thing was just talking yesterday, we hit our monthly goal for February across all the businesses. In January, we hit it as well, which was awesome. Our structure used to be very commission-based for the sales. People would get the highest bonuses and stuff. And that led to a lot of conflict in the company. So we then changed our whole comp structure where it was truly company-based targets. So the cleaning staff, the prep staff, the admin staff, they would get a chunk of reward when the salespeople hit it because without the whole supply chain and workflow working, we wouldn't hit the goal. So what we've done every month is they get to choose the reward that they want. And I was thinking, oh, this is going to cost a lot, but like, hey, it's worth it. You know, we're it's a multi-six figure a month in rev, so we can afford to do it. But last month they decided they wanted a, a one-day trip down to... Osaka, which is about 500 kilometers from Tokyo, to go to the Universal Studios, the theme park there. And it didn't cost much. It's a couple hundred bucks per person, but man, they loved it, right? And they reached the goal. 
well, this month's one, they just, uh, GM called us yesterday and said, oh, we've reached the monthly goal. They wanted to go to a yakiniku, which is a like Korean barbecue restaurant. They wanted to go like a luxury high-end one. So we found one, it's like 25, thinking Japanese, and it's like $270 per person for, you know, beautiful like wagyu strips of meat that they'll be cooking. A chef will be there cooking for them. That's what they want. You know, they've made a couple hundred thousand more in revenue and it's going to cost us 270 bucks per person to have a, this luxury, but that's what they want. And they hit the goal, you know, so every month we're trying to reward everyone in the company like that. They come together, they make what their bonus is, what their goal is when they achieve it. You know, all our staff are women as well. It's probably, you know, it's the reverse. We don't have any guys in the company. It's all women. Is there a reason for that? I don't know. It's just, you know, not many guys apply to be at a wedding and cafe. And I don't, it's just, that's how it, that's how it's washed out. But they range from 19 up to our oldest employee, 72. <laughs> She's been with us for 10 years. So it's fun to realize that all the staff, they've all got different motivations. And when you tap into that as a collective and, and work at what they really want to be rewarded and how they want to be rewarded, it can be surprising because I was ready to give like big monthly bonuses. One bonus they wanted uh, one month when we first started it was, oh, can we get new gold embossed name tags, like gold color? That was their the monthly bonus they wanted. We're just like, seriously? I was, I was like, okay, that's like 70 bucks each. That's okay. <laughs> that's what they, they were so excited though, you know? And then they realized, oh, we can push this a little bit more now. But yeah, the reward we get from it. And we send our, our staff overseas to do buying trips and merchandising stuff. And you wouldn't get that in Japan. The usual 21-year-old girl working in a company, they're not getting sent anywhere. But we'll send them on trips to China and Korea and to other locations to do our buying and, to, and, you know, it just lifts everyone. And that's, I think that's what a good business grade is when you take care of your staff. And I know it's cliche and people talk about, but these are some things you can do is listen to what they want and give it to them. <laughs> right. And it just lifts everyone's standard. Yeah. I love that because I mean, so often in the event space, when we talk about incentives, it's just one way of thinking about it. And that is to reward your top performing right. staff. Yeah. top performing members. And um, if you didn't hit that goal, then you're out. You don't make the cut. But I'd love how holistic, you know, what you've just shared is and how that involves everybody and it promotes inclusiveness. And at the end of the day, you, you're making savings as well as an employer and you're creating happiness because you got people to tell you what they wanted as a reward. I'm like, that ticks so many boxes. That's amazing to me. I mean, I had a sort of side question that is kind of left unanswered. So if Japan didn't do lockdowns and you had a lot of people attending your K-pop events and yet the wedding business was going down and there was no restrictions in that sense, can you explain why that disparity? Why were there not the weddings? The K-pop fanatical fans. So you've got fans that they can't travel outside the country anymore without coming back and being quarantined for like two weeks and stuff. and like any kind of soccer. I mean, these people are fanatics about their back. Yeah, but a wedding. Yeah, but a wedding is just the only one who are fans about it are the bride and groom. Everyone else is like, yeah, okay, we've got to go, all right. <laughs> and event spaces, they did put restrictions on like how many people you could have in a room and stuff like that. And just uh, it was a little bit scary. And because 
the way that weddings work in Japan, it's not like Australia. They're a, a two-hour affair, essentially, and you either have a family wedding first, and then you have an after-party, which is a friend's event, all right? And it's not like craziness. It's very ordered, very controlled. So with the family one, it's a lot of elderly people. And, you know, in Japan, it's all about the group and you put the other person first. So, you know, if you're a couple, you're not going to let auntie, uncle, grandma, grandma be exposed and then you cop it. So it's more a case of like people don't do it because they don't want to take the responsibility for like endangering their family. So people just kind of suspend it, you know, wedding events. And again, it's not fan-based. Yeah, you know, I, I love my brother, but I'm not going to go out and see him just because, you know, <laughs> he wants to get married. So I think that was the big difference is just the fandom of following a K-pop band. Now that you've explained that to me, that, that does make sense. <laughs> and, you know, I want to ask you about being an entrepreneur in Japan. I mean, you have an approach that I, I don't see that very often, and that is making your foreignness work for you mm -hmm. rather than against you because this is what I understand Japan is fascinating and has a reputation for going all the way out to help a visitor I've seen that for myself I've been in Japan and I've been blown away mm -hmm. by the hospitality but equally I've had friends who married into Japanese families and they've never felt like they were fully accepted mm. into Japanese Absolutely. society so you can correct me if I got the culture wrong but that idea of not trying to fit into do business is a quirky one. Can you tell me how that works? Yeah. So because my language skills are horrible and I had no friends and no contact, no family, nothing here, those things that I saw as weaknesses, I thought, well, how can I change that to become the strength? And that's how I first got into the wedding business was I wanted to make more money. And I saw in the newspaper said like wedding celebrants, you know, conduct wedding ceremonies as a person that looks like this. I'm like, Okay, so I called this business up and I said, yeah, we want native English speakers, preferably white. In Japan, they can say stuff like that and then we get in trouble. I said, preferably white and, you know, European or Australians, Australians are okay. Our accents are okay, apparently. And I said, oh, cool, what do we do? So oh, it's like a 15-minute ceremony. You've got to read out, you know, the ceremony and then say you're married. Because the only way you get married in Japan is legally by going to the local city hall where you sign up. Everything else is just literally a show. So they love the white wedding because it's like the princess thing and it's a show. So I was like, oh, cool. Can I do that? I'm happy to do it. And they said, yeah, you've got to pay us. So it's like 700 bucks for the training. I'm like, whatever. I had no money back then. I was like, nah. I went online. I found the garb. I found a little script. Got my partner. I said, hey, let's do this. I'll do it on the weekends. And we sent out letters to 50 restaurants. In Japan, the wedding business was really hotel-based, big hotel event spaces, not small restaurants and we pitched that, hey, why don't you use your space in the dead time for ceremonies? And three companies wrote back and said, oh, we'd love to do that. So I went out there and we did these weddings there. And then I, you know, hired some more people that looked like me to do it and that was making decent money. But then I, I actually asked a customer rudely one day, I said, oh, I love the dress. Um, how much is that? And she said like three thousand, three and a half thousand dollars I was like, oh, wow. She was, oh, to rent. And I was like, Huh? <laughs> Say again, she said, yeah, to rent it. I'm like, $3,000 to rent. Yeah. And I found out 95% of the wedding market in Japan is rental and the cost was obscene. And I thought we can undercut this. So that's what we did. And we created a multi-million dollar business out of it. But the great thing about, you know, being a non-native speaker, being this white guy here, 
that's what they wanted and I could make money. And after that, I became a partner in a recruiting company. The same thing, still didn't have Japanese. I thought, well, how can I recruit for companies in Japan if I don't speak Japanese? Well, what do you do? Well, you assist foreign capitalized companies that are opening in Japan, like the Amazons and the Facebooks and the Googles. So what we did, our firm was based on helping foreign companies staff up their management in Japan, became a multi-million dollar business. We actually got bought and went public on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. I never did one meeting in Japanese. All my clients, it was all in English and they wanted that. They wanted that perspective. They wanted to be able to have a person on the ground that could talk to. And then we were finding executives for them. Well, they wanted a Japanese executive, but they wanted a bilingual, bicultural executive. Well, who's going to assist that? Well, I can because I'm a native English speaker, right? So it was always like looking at how can I turn these things into, you know, a weapon and make it my strength. So I've always looked at whenever there's a weakness, like, okay, how can I flip this and then kind of sell it? (laughs) And it's worked so far. That's great because so many people try more to fit in rather than ask that question of how can I turn this around to my advantage? Because that's hard work, actually. (laughs) Yeah. And look, no matter how good your Japanese is, I'm in a crowd, I stand out. You know, even now, 20 years since, or 24 years since I've been in Japan, and the amount of foreigners has doubled since I've been here. But still, you know, I'll be in a restaurant, I'll look around, I'm the only white guy there. You know, last time I was on a train, I'm the only one that looks like this. So it's kind of weird going from, you know, being the majority to being a minority. But the beauty of it is you're kind of left alone (laughs) and you're in your own little bubble. And yes, I understand Japanese business culture and ethics and everything like that. I never like abuse it. But the great thing is I can not be a part of it and I can do things that Japanese wouldn't do. Like when I first started in the executive recruitment business, I was 27 or whatever. I was setting meetings with company presidents at 27. Now, if I was a Japanese guy at a recruiting company at 27, I'm going to be matched up with the other 27-year-old sales dude at that company. But because I was this not Japanese, these CEOs would meet me because they think, oh, who's this kind of young hot shot from you know, Australia? Well, okay, we'll meet. And it was all just shot. Right, but being different, I did some major events as well. I did an event for um, I brought Al Gore to Japan after he won his Nobel Prize. We did a big event here, and you know, I was able to do these things and take responsibility because if it's stuffed up, I didn't care. Like this is the thing in Japan, they distribute responsibility. Right, they're going to make the decision. They get like ten people saying yes, so we're all now collectively responsible. Where. I'm fine to take responsibility for something and say, I'll do it. Because if I make a mistake and stuff's up, I don't have like, you know, generations to shame. <laughs> it doesn't worry me. I mean, I don't see failure like that. The Japanese are very, they don't like that. So I, again, that was to my advantage that I could say, okay, hey, I'll do that. Who's going to take response? I will. I get to call the shots. So, you know, I just found that I can bridge the West and the East, so to speak, and I can play in my lane and and it just works successfully for me anyway. Yeah, it sounds like you have just found yourself such a sweet spot. I don't think you're going to be leaving Japan anytime soon. No, it's hard to, I mean, that's the thing I'm thinking like, where else would I want to go? And the only other place I can really think that I'd love a challenge, probably New York. But, um, and that's because of size and stuff that I see and you know, everyone says, oh, if you can make it in New York, I, th- I believe if you can make it in Tokyo, you can make it anywhere. 
I was just about to say that. <laughs> I think if you've survived Japan, I'm pretty sure New York will be a cup of tea. But let's shift gears to LinkedIn. It's funny, but there's this bit in your bio that made me go, wait, what? It says, I, as in you, Mm -hmm. have distilled LinkedIn methodologies that allowed our recruiting firm to pull out $22 million in fees from LinkedIn organically, Mm -hmm. utilizing the DANCE, as in D-A-N-C-E, all capped, and pink-suited method through these, my clients get predictable results on LinkedIn after years of famine. And I'm thinking like, okay, wait, 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 $22 million in fees? I mean, apart from membership fees for, for LinkedIn, if you want to go to pro account, what are, are, are there other fees that I don't know about? What I mean for that is our business by use, utilizing LinkedIn, we're able to put deals together at the average of twenty-seven dollars to $31,000, depending on the industry organically. So we used it as our primary business development tool. And we use the strategies to reach out and engage with people in a way that is not like everyone uses LinkedIn, you know, and and the the best way to describe it is when people, when people go on the platform and this is really, you know, salient for event planners and stuff who are trying to get sponsors or trying to reach out to partners, you can't come across like everyone else. You've got to use natural. The anatomy of a conversation is very different to in real life to what's used on LinkedIn. I'll give you an example. So if you came to Japan and you've been here, so you know, if you come here and you see the salary, they call them salarymen, right? Japanese businessmen, they wear black suits, white shirts, (laughs) that's like the uniform. Now imagine if you came into a networking event with me, I said, Hey, come to a networking event with me. We walked in the room everyone's in a black suit, white shirt, but in the middle of a room, there's a guy wearing a pink neon suit with a pink neon top hat. You walk up to that guy. What's the first thing you'd say to that guy? Really picture yourself, right? Everyone else is black suit, white shirt, guys in a pink suit, neon pink suit. What would you say? What's with the pink suit? (laughs) What's with the pink suit? Oh, I love your suit, right? Now imagine you're on LinkedIn and you walked up to that guy. What would you say? Hi, my name's Tyrant. I'm the LinkedIn guy. I do this. I do that. Here's a free download. Here's the calendar link. Why don't you book a 15 minute call with me? You think you've given all this value? Oh, I gave them a free PDF thing of the top five. No, you've totally ignored the way humans communicate in real life. Totally and utterly ignored it. So it's about reframing the way you approach people and talk to people and start conversations. The reason why deals never occur for most people on LinkedIn is because conversations never start because people come in and do these, I call them value vomits, where they come in and just like, I'm this, I do that. I solve this for people like you. Here's a free download. Here's an ebook. And here's my schedule. Book a 15 minute call. That's not how any of us ever communicate. Imagine walking up to someone in a networking event the first time you met them. Hi, I'm Tyron. Here's my brochure. Here's my calendar. Here's a video. Why don't you watch this on YouTube? You wouldn't do it. So just changing and emulating real life in the platform, that changes everything. That's made us millions and millions of dollars. Just these shifts in the way you actually communicate and you move someone through a conversation has obscene difference from what people do and then emulating real life. So that's what I coach a lot of small business owners on how to get in there and actually how to, what is the formula you can use to start these conversations? And, you know, when I say find the pink suit, you know, when you reach out to someone, 
look at their socials, find something about them, and then take a screenshot of them. Like if they're on an interview with, say you're reaching out to a CEO of a mid-sized or even large-sized company, he's probably been interviewed. Check out Google, put his name in, put CEO, he's on the interview. The interview is 12 minutes long. Go to the six-minute mark where he's like on the thing. Take a screenshot of that. This is a pattern interrupt, right? Put that in the messenger of LinkedIn. What's in his inbox at the moment? It's just text, text, text. Suddenly there's a picture of him. And then you want to ask an irresistible question, a question they can't help but answer. A good question would be, oh, I love that point you made. Have you always been that comfortable on camera? Oh, yeah, thank you. Yes. He's thinking, man, this guy's watched 12 minutes of this video. He's taken the six-minute mark. He's asked me this question about me. What's another thing company, especially founders, what have they done when you create a company? You create your company name, you create your logo. How many of us have created a logo, spent like a couple of weeks on it, showed our friends, family, wife, husband, said, oh, I like it. They honor I'm like, oh, I like it. I'm going to use it. You've all got a story. How many times has someone reached out to you, slammed your logo in your messenger and said, I love this. Is this your design? No one, right? <laughs> That's how we start conversations. Pattern interrupt, irresistible question. Find the pink suit. There's many ways, ways to do that. And then you can transition them through a conversation very naturally. So it's just like looking for these shifts. And if you think of the anatomy of conversation, when you meet someone for the first time, it's generally the same. It's question, answer, question, answer, anecdote, opinion, question, answer, anecdote, opinion. That's how it goes. And it's shorter questions at the start, long and shorter answers. And then it gets longer. Like, Guys, start to emulate the way you really communicate. That's why it's called LinkedIn Messenger and not LinkedIn Inbox. You've got to use it like it's a messenger, like it's a free-flowing conversation. And when you crack that and when you crack the frameworks, changes the whole ball game of LinkedIn. And I, I can vouch that. I mean, this method actually does work because I remember the first message that I got from you and it said, hey, you know, I really like this particular episode that was from your podcast. And that jumped out at me. I mean, I, I get a couple of requests from people to be interviewed on the podcast, but I rarely get someone who say, I've actually heard an episode. And sometimes I get a request that com is completely misfiring. Like what you're suggesting that I do an interview about is just totally not even my subject, <laughs> not even my topic. Right. It's just completely off. Yeah. And that's magnified on LinkedIn tenfold, right? And the thing is as well, when you're searching for people to go after and you do a search, everyone treats the results of your search, everyone treats everyone the same, but they're not. Someone who's posting three times a week is completely different to someone who hasn't posted anything in the last 30 days. And the way we approach them and the time given to them should be completely different to the person who's posted once in the last two months, right? And the way you approach it. And so you've got to start to really break down your audiences, your platforms, and really think about where people are in their journey and how can you get their attention and what can you bring to them and then do it as natural as possible. I think one of the easiest filters, and this would save anyone listening, will save you money. When you reach out to anyone or you're in a conversation with anyone, use this filter. So with what you know of that person and what your relationship is with that person, would you say it in real life if they were standing in front of you? And if the answer is no, don't type it, right? Like literally don't type these formal, if you wouldn't say it, don't type it. And I always use that filter and that has always worked tremendously. It saved me a lot of time when I've written out a long paragraph, like I wouldn't be like this. 
no, I wouldn't do that. Like, don't do it. <laughs> it's as easy as that. You, uh, you've, sorry to say this, but you've wet our appetite already. I mean, how would you start a conversation differently? Someone who is a frequent poster to someone mm. who hardly gets on, but is your target audience. Yeah. So, I mean, where I'm going to put my time, I mean, not as, again, not every target is equal. And then where we want to put our time, we want to engage with someone on the platform of choice that they're the most active in, right? Because that's what they're comfortable with. That's where they're showing their time. Now, if someone's a frequent poster, I'm saving them as a lead and I'm going to be doing at least seven touch points. I get my clients to do at least seven touches with them before they ever send a connection request. And it doesn't take, there's tools inside LinkedIn that allow you to do that, but we want to pre-warn them. And it doesn't take long to get the attention of someone. If you're, every time they post, you're there posting. Now, some of my clients are like, oh, I feel a bit like a stalker. It's like, no, you've got to remember the people that are frequent posters, they're not having this conversation or oh, I'm going to post today. I hope no one sees it. I hope no one likes this. No, they want it. They need it. They're craving for it. So very quickly, you can get in a routine with them. They post, boom, you're there with that comment. Give them a bit of a, you know, scratch on the head, a bit of a Scooby snack. Give them, stroke their ego a little bit about something. There's going to be awareness. In about a seven to 14 day period, they're likely to send you the connection request. Or if they haven't, usually after about seven engagements, I'll get my clients to then send them. It's almost a hundred percent connection acceptance rates at that point. And then the conversation will get 80, 85% response rates when we do our pattern interrupt and irresistible question, right? And everyone should do that. Like if someone sends you a connection request, even make it about them, not about you, right? And that's where people falter. They're like, oh, thank you. I'm happy to accept your connections. I do this, but was there a reason why you connected with me? Like, oh, no, there wasn't. I'm just like, I'm being polite. Make it about them. As soon as someone connects, find that pink suit, ask that irresistible question, take the meeting. Now, if it's someone who's infrequent, you then have to realize the amount of time and energy I put into that, the chance of getting connected, the chance of them responding to a, a message is going to be way low. It might be as low as 15 to 30% connection, and it might be as low as 5% response rate. So in that case, what I'm going to do is I'm going to craft messages for those type of people that are kind of question-based, but really, really simple. You don't want to ask complex questions to anyone. Not What do you think of? How do you feel that? I, no, because people have a choice. When they see a complex question or a complicated question, they have to do this. For me to answer this and not look stupid, I'm going to have to write like five to 10 sentences. Ah, I can't be bothered. I'm going to ignore it, right? But if someone asks me a question where it can be answered yes or no, but I'll give another sentence or two, yeah, I'm going to write it. It's an irresistible question. But I'm going to automate those kind of outreach because the numbers just aren't in my favor. I'm not going to spend. And then I'll try to get them elsewhere. What I'll do, I'll hunt down their phone number, right? People don't cold call these days still. They're so afraid to do it. But, you know, to get through, especially large companies, when you're calling into a company in particular, you know, there's usually a gatekeeper, right? Some kind of receptionist, assistant or whatever. The reality is it's usually a female that's answering the call, right? It just is. Not being sexist, that's the way it goes, especially in Japan. I always find you get, you know, what's that? You get more um, honey than vinegar. I can't remember what the phrase is, but 
you know, when I go in there, I want to be really sweet. So I want to use a bit of psychology because I want to speak to that person. But that gatekeeper's job is to stop me speaking to that person, right? So a good hint for people, if they're not answering on LinkedIn and not participating, call them, <laughs> call them. And when you get a gatekeeper, the first thing to do is like this, like, oh, thank you. I'm so happy to get through. Hey, I was speaking to John at an ABC company. He said that the people at Riverside are so helpful and it's, he's at the best time calling to this company. Um, so I'm hoping you can help me. I've heard, you know, you people are so helpful. Now who's going to say, oh, you got that wrong. We're <laughs> unhelpful. We're actually really, really unhelpful. Right. And then it's like, yeah, I'm trying to get onto to John. Actually, it's via LinkedIn. I had some questions there and just, I'm just following up on some questions. Now that person's thinking like, oh, maybe they're connected. They've already said his name. They know who it is. They're being polite. Okay. Let me put you through. And then you're on to John and you can start speaking to John about what you are. And again, you want to make it question based and, and get through, but to rely on just one method to get onto someone. Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> You've got to mix it up and it can be email. It can be on socials, but you know, try to pre-warm, warm people up. Those that are active, warm them, warm them, warm them. Those that are inactive, you're going to have to go to the, the platform where they are most active. And as I said, don't be afraid to call. You know, you can get a lot done with some good openers on cold calling people. Yeah, those are some fantastic tips. And I've got to say, I'm rewinding this a little bit. I've never heard of a lead magnet being described as a value vomit. So that's a first for me. But I think it is so true because I'm a sucker for freebies, but it's just getting to that point. Sometimes I'm like, ah, oh, not another one. Well, you don't. The reality is when you're reaching out to someone for the first time and you're dumping all this stuff on them, you think it's valuable, but unless they've got the issue or the problem or the interest, it's just garbage to them. You can only deliver value when you know that there's an opportunity that they're looking for or there's a bleeding neck problem they want to solve. Yeah. Otherwise, it is about, it's a value vomit. And no one, that's why responses to them, it's either, ah, oh, thanks or silence. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When you're in the LinkedIn space, I mean, you describe the common mistakes that you see a lot of people make, but are there specific ones that you see people in tourism and events make, or are they pretty much, we're all just doing the same wrong things? Across all industries, you know, what people are trying to do is they're making it about them rather than making it about the other person. And again, going through a natural conversation with someone. The transition is what I see in the, in the event space, to be honest, the business development side of the event space, especially for small businesses and sales acumen is really poor. It generally is pretty poor. What they would do is like, oh, here are three events we did and it's case study, case study, case study. These people aren't looking at it. They're not. You've got to get into a conversation and it's really understanding what that major bleeding neck problem that that person has or what have you got that changes their current status quo? And can you show that their current status quo actually sucks? They might not know it sucks. They've got to be shown that staying in your status quo is ridiculous. And, you know, that this is the alternative. And do it through questioning. Like when I reach out to for whatever business and I tell my clients, I never say, oh, I do this. Do you want it? It'd be more like, oh, Hey, you know, after I've had the patent interrupt, irresistible question, we stack a couple of times back and forth, just once or twice, because, you know, that's why conversations die as well, because they're waiting like, okay, what's he want? Why does he keep on asking this question? So I'll just go and ignore him now. 
So we don't want to do that. But like just by transforming the way you asked your questions, be like, oh, Tom, now that I can see your profile, you remind me so much of John out of ABC. He had this, whatever that big bleeding neck problem. Yeah, we got that solved with him in seven days. How have you solved it? And he's thinking, oh, we haven't solved that. And you're like, really? And that can be fixed in like, literally in like, you know, seven days. Would it work for us? Yeah. But then, and let's get off on a call, right? So asking him those kind of transitionals are better. Or even saying like, oh, is that something you're trying to solve at the moment? But generally I always find when I'm asking like, oh, how did you do it? You get your answer pretty quick. And I've never had to say, I do this, do you want it? They come back and like, oh, really? That works? Can that work for me? And then if you're putting out content and you're active on LinkedIn and people can see your credentials by observing the way that you're putting information out, that supports them to then like take it further. If your profile is like one line of where you work now, and by the way, if you're a business owner on LinkedIn and you've got a resume as a profile and you're, you've got to ask yourself, what's a resume used for? For getting a job. What are you trying to do? Get clients. So ditch the resume, change your profile more into like a mini landing page. Use those experiences to showcase the services that you offer. You've got to get away from the resume style. No, you know, you're not looking for a job. So it's all those little elements that when someone lands on your profile and they see this stuff, it's about the solutions to problems that they have, and there's evidence that you've done it for someone else, it converts those conversations at a higher rate. Because when someone's getting a message, what do you do? You go check them out and you come back. If they're not posted anywhere, they've got no comment that, well, you're like, oh, okay, this is just a person trying to sell me stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I'm glad that you raised that difference about using your LinkedIn profile as a landing page rather than a resume. I must admit I'm guilty as charged as well. And I need to set aside some time in my schedule to kind of um, change things up a bit. But you're right. I mean, the first time most of us got into LinkedIn, it was about getting jobs. It was like we were just told uh, use it as a resume, yeah. put in, and, and that's the way LinkedIn is also structured in terms of, you know, asking you the questions yep. and populating um, all their spaces. It's designed so that you put in, where did you study? What are your degrees, yeah. uh, et cetera. But yeah, I, I understand where exactly you're coming yeah. from, much more effective for business. There is an observation in the events industry that there's not as many people on it now, not as many people on LinkedIn now. Uh, when we were all locked down, we were getting a lot of engagement, but not so much with some normality returning. So some people are asking, is it still worth spending all that time creating all those posts, which are mm -hmm. time consuming? Well, I mean, the reality is in the last quarter, um, LinkedIn had 19% increase in engagement across the board. So, you know, the platform has only increased in fact. And the reason why things decrease is, you know, it's probably the person using it, they've decreased. And LinkedIn is very much what you put in is what you get out. So if you are inactive and if you aren't participating, you're just going to drop off the algorithm. And I hate to say that because I don't know the algorithm. I've read their stuff about their engineering blogs about it, but I'm not an expert, but I can say that the less active you are, you educate the algorithm on what kind of experience that you'll get from it. You know, the more that you're active, the more you're engaging, more conversations you're having, more messaging that you're doing, you get shown to more people, your content gets further, you come up in more searches. It all has effect. So you've got to play your game. And that means, yeah, setting a time. If you've got, if you're doing business development, 
mean, one thing I do, I have a clicker here, right? Every time I speak to someone every day, I click and I have a goal to try to speak to 10 people every day, like whether it's a new message and outreach, but just like to constantly get, keep myself in the thought of, you know, it's a contact sport, especially if you're a small business owner in the event space, you've got to be speaking to prospects daily, every day. And if you're not, you're not going to make money. Like find a new JV partner, find a new vendor, find what just every day. And I have this always in front of me to remind me that keep on speaking, keep on speaking. And LinkedIn gives you that option to constantly open up conversations because you never know when it pays off. So, you know, having a bench of talent is really important, right? And my bench is quite deep. I've got, you know, people that are copywriters for other business. I've got people who are developers. I've got, and people that I keep warm and conversations with. So when I do have a need, I can, I can pull it up fast. So if you've just abandoned it, well, yeah, you've got to get in there. The more you put in there, the more you're going to get out of it. Yeah, I, I think that is so true. And I love what you said about it being a, a contact sport. Just as we're kind of wrapping up our conversation, I, I think people can just tell how much you have to offer. If you could give one piece of advice for entrepreneurs starting out, say you're teaching a class of newbies mm. and you are sharing your top secret for success, what would that be? There's a couple of things. The top would be pre-planning your day. Like stop being reactive. When you're reactive, it means others control your day. So at least the day before, you know, the night before as you close out your day, block your time and be, you know, two of the activities I always, that I always, always put in is the business development section. Like I've always got to be reaching out to people. Right. And then I always like to put a content creation time on my schedule and then you can fill it up with meetings or whatever you've got on plan, but like pre-plan your day and absolutely stick to it. The other thing that I find a lot of entrepreneurs, once they get going and they have to get to that first point where they're doing their first hiring, this is where so many entrepreneurs die, unfortunately, not literally, but their business dies a lot, is the training aspect is passing on the knowledge. And it's so time consuming and nothing's worse when you've hired someone, you've trained them for two weeks and then they leave. That's happened. I mean, it had happened to me. So one of the things that you should do, and you can start it from a very early on um, in your entrepreneurial life and business is every transactional thing that you do repetitively, film it, use Loom or ScreenFlow, whatever software you have, film the process that you are doing, right? So maybe you have to do, you're uploading content onto Instagram or whatever it is. If you're doing this repetitively, it's a task that you can palm off to someone else at a future date. So film that and put it in the Google Drive. You don't even have to have a fancy membership site or training site. Make folders and build up your training folders, right? So then when you hire someone, you have Instagram. Hey, go to the Instagram folder. There's seven videos on the task that you're going to do and it's done. And the next person you hire. And then the other thing is, when they're doing it, get them to film it as well. If you've given them a new task and they're now doing it and they're repeating it, get them to do it. So they essentially make their training program for their replacement or as the team expands. So yeah, planning your day and starting a training library are two things I think are, that can really, really help yeah. get you to revenue events faster. That's great. Creating systems. Do you have a favorite companion tool to LinkedIn? For LinkedIn, I mean, there's a whole heap of CRMs and stuff out there. I like Pipedrive as a sales tool. It connects with LinkedIn. There's ways to connect it automatically, which is really cool. 
So literally you can visit someone on LinkedIn and it will suck it into your CRM for you. And as you message them, you can move them across a pipeline. So every day you can just see, you can suck people into LinkedIn when you send a connection request. And once they connect, it pulls them out of the bucket and puts them in your like must message now pipeline. That's all automated. So you never lose, you know, you never drop the ball. But someone a month ago that you send a connection request, you probably forgot about it. And if you didn't put a note, when they accept, you're not going to know. But, you know, when I open Pipedrive, I can see, okay, these 10 people have connected and like, they're the ones I've got to take action on today. So yeah, as a tool, I like that. And then just for training, I really love Loom. I don't know, most people should know it by now, but L-O-O-M.com. Loom is fantastic for, you know, screen sharing and recording and making these little training videos. Yeah. And also all entrepreneurs get inspiration from somewhere. Where do you seek most of your, I mean, are you a book person? And if so, you know, what is a book you can recommend? I've got piles of books. So, you know, I grew up with like, you know, books are, you have to treat them like gold. I'm, I'm in there scrubbing, you know, circling on them and I consume a book. And I think authors actually would probably love to see what I do with their books as opposed to what I grew up with. But, um, Yes, I love books. I love audio. I love listening to books now because you can put on, you know, 1.5x and you can get a book done in four hours or whatever. So every day I will consume. I'm very curious. I love to learn. And a book that really stands out that is transformational, I think, is a book called The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham. Basically, the main premise of the book, which is just so true, is for you to be successful, it's not about just constantly doing things right. It really is about reducing your mistakes. That is it. So what it means is spend more time on thinking, spend more time on actually contemplating, okay, what are those next steps? Make less mistakes. And the classic example is just look at your own life. And if you could reverse three financial decisions that you've made in your life, how better would you be off? I know I would be infinitely better off. There's three things that like, if I could take back, it just goes to show me that crap. Yeah. If I, those three things, my life would be completely different if they worked the other way. So make fewer mistakes. Yeah. Make fewer mistakes. Yeah. And then you're just creating a 3.0 version of yourself and then a 4.0 version of yourself. Yeah. Um, and then you'll see the rewards of leverage. Uh, Absolutely. The, yeah, fantastic. I, I've loved speaking with you and I, I think our listeners are learning so much as well. Uh, Tyron, how do people get in contact with you if they wish to? Yeah. Or how do people follow your stuff? Sure. I mean, if it's full, I guess a lot of business owners on, on the LinkedIn space, I found that I get a lot more stuff done in Facebook than LinkedIn because people who are great at LinkedIn, you know, they don't need me. So the best place to find me on Facebook, there's a group called LinkedIn sales funnels for entrepreneurs. There's about 7,000 people there. Come and join. And I put every week, um, at least two times, but sometimes four times a month training for the week. We have a theme for the week and I put trainings out, videos and stuff specifically for, you know, business owners and, and small entrepreneurs. So you can find me there. Fantastic. And I'll put those links, everything that we've talked about and your recommendations in the show notes as well. So people have an easy way to um, look you up. Sure. Thank you so much, Tyrone. It's been a fabulous hour and we look forward to more stuff from you and we'll be following your journey. Yeah, thank you. That was fun. Thanks. And hey, thanks for listening. I hope you got something out of the conversation. 
Let me know if there was something you agreed or didn't agree with in this episode. Email me at uponarrivalpodcast at gmail.com. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this show if you like it. That would help other people find this show, and I'd most appreciate that. I'll be back next week to uncover more stories and strategies for a successful future. Till then, cheers. Cheers.